you know, in, in, in startups, you don't have a lot of people and you don't have a lot of staff uh, to do a lot of really complicated things. And in the end, you know, those are the things that we're doing. We're driving, uh, we're driving for results. Hello, everyone. This is Ellen, the producer of The Black Line Between Sales and Marketing with Doug Davidoff, CEO of Imagine Business Development and Mike Donnelly, CEO of Seven Cents. Let's get started. Hello and welcome to this edition of the Black Line Podcast. Today, we are very excited to have Steve Powell join us. Steve has a little bit of a different background than a lot of the people that we've been interviewing recently. So can't wait to hear his take on marketing from more of an enterprise perspective, what's happening in the world, what makes sense, what doesn't make sense. Uh, but at this point, I'll shut up and say, Steve, welcome to the show. Why don't you tell everybody a little bit about yourself and kind of how you got here today? Yeah, thanks. So uh, uh, again, my name is Steve Powell. I, I run marketing for a startup company here in Seattle, Washington called Igneous Systems. Uh, I've uh, basically come here because I have uh, done a bunch of startups. Uh, a couple of them uh, 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 went out public. For example, I was the first uh, head of product management for uh, a company called Barracuda Networks. And uh, when I left there, I was the SVP and GM of, uh, uh, of their security business. Uh, and Barracuda went public on the New York Stock Exchange. Uh, I was also uh, VP of marketing for a, a company called Latitude Communications, which uh, got bought by uh, Cisco uh, in the early 2000s. But we actually went public before that in, uh, uh, in the late 90s. And so... Uh, so done a couple of those. I've also uh, uh, done a couple of startups that have been acquired. I even uh, did one that, that sucked and we gave the money back. So <laughs> a very, very good, you know, very, very broad set of experiences. So it, it sounds like you took the Jeb Bush path where he actually returned money to uh, the people who funded his presidential campaign because he wasn't able to spend it fast enough. Yeah, you know, what's funny about that is that uh, the VCs don't want that. They actually yeah. don't want you to do that. Uh, you know, their job is really to, uh, uh, to, to keep the money invested. And, uh, but it was, it, that was actually a really super interesting situation where it was in the, uh, uh, it was right during the, the whole dot-com collapse. The company was, uh, uh, was founded to really serve uh, internet service providers. And uh, what it really happened at that point in time was that uh, the internet service providers weren't buying and the, uh, you know, kind of the, the, the engineering crew and the company that, uh, that was there, I was hired to kind of lead, lead a restart. Uh, they, they didn't really have the, uh, uh, the wherewithal left to, uh, to, to move forward. And so the recommendation there was, uh, was hey, you know, the, um, <laughs> uh, you know, the guys kind of don't want to do this anymore. Let's, let's not do it. So you, I guess you either go the Ehrlich Bachman route and you throw a party on Alcatraz or you return the money. <laughs> but, you know it's it's funny there there is something about you know venture capital where they they may have actually wanted uh to, to throw the party reinvigorate right. everybody and keep going right right so we got we got the right person i'm going to start off with a real softball question for you sure you have been in startups that scaled and went public and you've been in startups that fell flat i'm sure when you started there you were equally excited about um the opportunities What's the difference? Wow. So I said really easy. I said, we're going to start. Yeah. Reading. Well, yeah. I guess the, the biggest difference that I would, I would articulate is luck. 
that is the, the actually the biggest it's it's there's so much of uh, of being in the right place at the right time like one of the things that I actually uh, really love is uh, I had once read something about uh, the CEO of Evernote who actually talked about the fact that uh, Evernote uh, may never have been what it what it was if it weren't for the iPad that the iPad was this big tidal wave that really changed everything because it was a device that everybody wanted to use, but they knew it wasn't going to be your only device. And so unlike your laptop where maybe OneNote was okay and you didn't need to sync across everything, the iPad was really uh, uh, marked kind of the first thing that everybody wanted to use in that form factor for that application where the whole value proposition of syncing across your, your tablet, your phone, and your PC was, was really a very unique value proposition. And I can tell you that, uh, that there were a lot of things that we executed really, really well at Barracuda. But I think that, uh, that for us, what really happened was that the, the, the massive growth in spam during that period was like fossil fuels. It was like a one-time gift from God. You know, it was luck. Like if our first product had been a web filter or if our, more extremely, if our first product had been an SSL VPN, uh, Barracuda wouldn't um, have grown into what it is today. Interesting. Well, I mean, on the Barracuda front, I was gonna, I was gonna save this for, uh, for a little bit later, but, and it's, I think it's still very prevalent. I, re I always remembered walking through the airports and just seeing, just being bombarded by Barracuda. And I thought that was, <laughs> Doug, you're laughing, obviously. I mean, it was just, it was everywhere. And I just thought to myself, these, these guys are just, you know, they're executing on all fronts. I mean, what, so tell, I mean, if, if you've got, uh, if, if you were involved in that or, or know the backdrop yeah. of that, I'd love to, I'd love to. Yeah. I mean, that was, uh, that was the, uh, the genius of Mike Peroni, who was our, uh, our head of marketing uh, at the time. And uh, what I loved about it is that, uh, uh, that Mike is a, uh, is a brilliant marketing guy with great intuitions, but he's also an engineer. And so, you know, a lot of the motivation for doing our offline advertising was because uh, Barracuda was doing so well in, uh, in online marketing. And in particular, you know, uh, Mike did a good job at, uh, at SEO. So if you type spam filter into Google, we would appear uh, you know, on the first page of search results. He did a really good job early on with, uh, with Google AdWords. Because remember, we're back in 2003, 2004, you know, folks weren't that mature about their use of AdWords. And one of the things that was really interesting, if you, if you understand, and now Google AdWords is very well understood, where what Google is trying to optimize their algorithms for is uh, revenue uh, per visitor. So basically, that's the multiplier of the click-through rate in your bid price. And one of the things that started to happen during the growth of, of spam and anti-spam is that uh, the bid prices for the terms were getting really expensive. So you pay a lot on a per-click basis. And what Mike actually figured out as an engineer was that, uh, well, wait a second, if I can do things to improve my click-through rate, I'm gonna pay less per click. And that was exactly at a period during like a, a technology recession where doing things uh, offline was very inexpensive. You know, they were, uh, the economy wasn't that good for things like airport ads and uh, for radio ads and things of that sort. 
And what, uh, what Mike actually figured out was, hey, if I invest a little bit there uh, and people hear me on the radio or they see me on airport ads, they're going to be more likely to click my ad than any other uh, anti-spam startups ad. And so I'm going to have a higher click-through rate. I'm gonna, and it's going to be easier for me to get the number one position uh, in Google without the, uh, uh, the in insane bid prices. And so that's where it really started. And then what Mike actually figured out was that, was that uh, airport ads and radio ads are actually very scalable because of syndication. So you can make creative once, and it's just about how much you're willing to spend. Uh, and so as long as the activity produces ROI, there are certain offline activities that uh, scale very, very well. And so you know, now Barracuda is at the place where uh, you will often see, uh, like it, it started with, hey, let's hit some target airports. But with syndication, it was like, let's hit more airports. And now you'll find that they're in multiple terminals of, of airports because the amount of money uh, that you spend is really easy to scale. You don't need to go do more creative. You don't need to do uh, more work. You just you call up the syndication company and you decide to spend more. And radio works the same way. So it just turned out it was a really, really great way initially for us to, uh, to offset some costs of some Google AdWords, which had clear ROI. You know, that's the whole thing. It had clear ROI to go do that. And then it kind of took a life of its own. You know, I, I'm going to, uh, Steve, I want to just say that, that what you just shared is probably as valuable as anything I've heard. And I don't mean to make this a love fest, but it's probably as valuable as anything I've heard um, in, in several years in marketing. And, and, and I want to hit a couple points and, 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 and see where that takes us from a conversation standpoint. Because you guys did two things that I see most executives not doing and, and most marketers not doing. And those two, things, those two things were you solve for a result rather than an action, right? And, and so especially if you think about the fact, even if you hadn't done the signs, the ROI you were getting from AdWords certainly justified what you were spending on it. And so you could have just continued to play that game, look at a dashboard, see a number, um, but you realized two things. You realized, hey, what's the result we want, which is click-throughs, opportunities, and B, what's the game we're playing? How do we get – let's understand the rules and, um, and let's not play by necessarily everyone else's rules. Let's, let, let's understand that. And so seeing through the action is, is point number one. Point number two that I think is really interesting, and if we have, we'll see if we get to point three and four later, I have seen – businesses, I think the, the number one mistake I see marketing organizations and entrepreneurs make is they do something and it works. And so you know what they do? They stop doing it. They, they go, oh, wait, now we got to change it. And, and if you think about what you brought out was the scalability, you, you, you did two great things with, with the ads in the airports. You brought down your cost per impression, if you will, and you add it to the impact of the impression because you don't see the sign the first time and you don't see the sign the second time and you don't see the sign the third time, but when it's there again and again and again, and it's the same thing to the rest of the world, that's, that, that's when it actually begins to have its impact. Yeah. Well, and that's, that, that's really, you know, the, the whole thing. There's a, there's an economic term, you know, the law of increasing returns. 
And at Barracuda, we often use the law of increasing returns uh, to talk about how uh, our anti-spam business grew. Because in the early days, uh, you know, uh, Barracuda leveraged a lot of open source technology. You know, we built on, you know, Clam AV and Spam Assassin, um, and we got a lot of customers. But what's interesting is that getting a lot of customers uh, actually makes your corpus of, of spam much better, which gives you the capability to get better at anti-spam protection. So what's interesting is you start off with volume, but actually volume and scale actually creates expertise. And that expertise is actually what draws you forward. So today, a very small percentage of you know, Barracuda's code base is open source because we were able to use that expertise and develop better products. And that was, uh, and what's funny is what you're describing is that same thing became true of the marketing, which is actually the more you advertise in certain venues, the more effective that it becomes. And you know, radio and, uh, and airport ads you know, certainly became that, which is that uh, you know, in the beginning, it would be a, uh, we'd get happy every time, you know, somebody said, hey, you know what, my, uh, my boss put a sticky note on my desk that said he saw your ad in the airport and said, hey, we have an anti-spam problem. Have you looked into this? You know, and our number was, you know, 88 anti-spam. So you get happy when things would happen. You know, today, we are actually at the point where within the target markets, which uh, uh, you will find, you know, uh, you know, owners of, you know, mid-market businesses, uh, presidents of mid-market businesses uh, have awareness of what their IT guys are actually using in that part of it. And so there definitely is a law of increasing returns, you know, not just with the technology of that business, but, but also with the brand. So, yeah, there was a little bit of Intel inside in there too, because if you hadn't done that, it would have been, you know, my firewall, who cares, uh, you know, as opposed to Barracuda and I'm I'm curious your take on this as as a marketer with with what you're doing because I'm sure you're on the trend of of measuring everything data driven data backed decisions. If if Barracuda were to be around today, would would you guys have had the guts to do that airport advertising when someone said, "Well, how are we going to measure the impressions and impact of that?" You know, I think that one of the things is that uh, uh, is that right now the the market for the airport ads for technology companies is so competitive that uh, I don't think that uh, that we would have done it. Like right now, the 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 beauty of uh, what happened with Barracuda is that they have such a long-standing relationship with all these advertisers that they can still actually get pricing at scale. But I think that Barracuda would have done something else. I'll give you a, uh, when I really saw the genius of Mike Crony was, uh, and this was really cool at the time, uh, uh, was that, uh, that, that uh, Mike was into surfing. And uh, uh, there was a, uh, there was a, it used to be a big wave surf event called the Mavericks. Are you familiar with that? Yep. I know yeah. Mike Donnelly is. He's our, he's our resident serving expert. Yeah. So it turns out that, uh, that it turns out there was one year that, uh, that what Mike did is said, hey, what we're going to do is we're going to match uh, the prize money of the Mavericks. Uh, so I think the prize money was like 75,000 bucks. So we, we raised it to 150. Uh, wow. It turns out that, uh, that, uh, I, at the time, you know, I was running product management and I was thinking to myself, God, what, what's Mike doing now? This is, this is crazy. What's he doing? And I remember then going to Interop that year 
And uh, a couple guys actually came by the booth and actually said, dude, you guys are sponsoring the Mavericks. That is really cool. And, and I went back and I told Mike, I'm like, hey, Mike, I can't believe that happened. And he, he basically explained to me his logic. And he said, you know, why I did this is that, the, uh, that while the Mavericks was running, this is back then, perennially, it was a top 10 uh, YouTube view. And uh, uh, the demographic of folks who actually viewed those views, a lot of them were young uh, technology professionals who work in you know, mid-market businesses. So it turned out that for that, and in, fact, in fact, the Mavericks got canceled that year because of weather. So it was actually all, we got national PR for doing the Mavericks thing. We actually got a lot of plugging and a lot of coverage uh, for as the Mavericks, uh, as the prelude to the Mavericks was happening all on YouTube. We got all this great advertising, all this great national press. And there's no way that if we wanted to go spend 75 grand on a marketing program, we would have actually gotten that much visibility. And the reason that Mike did that was because no one else was there. So no other technology vendors were sitting there trying to do stuff like sponsor the Mavericks. And, you know, that was the kind of stuff that uh, the Barracuda did. I'll give you a, another really interesting story. When um, uh, we, when we wanted to, we were thinking about opening an office in Ann Arbor, Michigan. The, uh, uh, we were still a small company. Uh, it turns out the chairman of the computer science department uh, for the University of Michigan, was doing her tour of Google, Sun Microsystems, you know, every other, you know, big company in the Valley, uh, basically trying to recruit those companies to set up offices in Ann Arbor. So she shows up to our crappy little office in Mountain View as we're still a startup. And the chairman of the computer science part for the University of Michigan comes with her entourage. And she actually said, hey, you know, I actually thought you guys were bigger than you are because I'm a Red Wings fan. And she had seen the Barracuda logo on the shark's ice so many times, you know, watching hockey. And at that time, it was super rare for technology companies like us to be sponsoring professional hockey. And, uh, uh, but what Mike had done is he had, same analysis, it turns out that the San Jose Sharks at that time had more fans in the IT demographic than any other professional sports team in the world. And so he said, look, uh, this is, in addition to having a personal interest in the Sharks, he said, I, this is a, a great example of being where no one else is. And we were able to look like to the, the computer science department of the University of Michigan, you know, like we were in the leagues of a, of a, a Google or a Sun that they hadn't heard of. Wow. I mean, this, this is all, this is all incredibly fascinating. And, 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 the other piece of that too is I can see exactly what you're saying about technology companies. They have literally just mirrored exactly Barracuda's, you know, approach. Like you see EMC now doing it everywhere. Dell, well, Dell EMC. Um, Pure has done a lot of it around like billboards, et cetera. But as the world has gotten more noisy and marketing has gotten more complex, I mean, maybe you're, you know, I guess the, the question is what's next? I mean, you, you may not be willing to give us the gold, but, you know, what, what can companies, small, mid-sized businesses do today to try and rise above that noise? Um, 
Yeah, I mean, I think that the, uh, you know, I think the Barracuda strategy was definitely about being where folks weren't. And I think that the reason that uh, that, that played very well is that uh, the Barracuda was a business that, you know, where the sweet spot of the customer was like the, you know, 100 to 1,000 person company. And so there are a lot of them, you know, there are a million uh, uh, companies in the, uh, uh, the world that, that actually can meet those criteria. Uh, and on the other hand, if you look at the company I'm at now, Ignea Systems, you know, we are really selling to, you know, the top, I don't know, 5% of the market. We are looking at the kind of enterprises that have uh, uh, hundreds of file systems, billions of files, petabytes of unstructured data. Now, that's the very, very upper echelon on the, of the market. And I think that one of the things, one of the expressions I like, there's a fellow I know, uh, by the name of uh, Tinzo. He is the CEO of Zawara. And uh, we worked together back at Oracle back in the uh, early 90s. And he says something that I really think is really great, which is that as a startup, you have to decide how you're going to make your first $100 million. Are you going to have one uh, $100 million customer? Are you going to have 10 $10 million customers? Are you going to have 100 $1 million customers, 1,000 you know, $100,000 customers? And you got to move forward. And what's interesting is, is that, you know, he talks about, when he talks about the early days of Zora, he said, look, I used to think that we were going to be a company that sold to a lot of companies that would make $10,000 purchases. He's like, I've now actually realized that we're a, we're a company that's selling to folks that make $100,000 purchases. And I think that the real, you know, you know wisdom to, you know, the, the general principle that he talks about is really understanding uh, uh, who you're trying to go hit. And so what's interesting is that, you know, the experience that we had at, at, at Barracuda as we we're growing the company is really different from the ones that we're, uh, that we're doing here at Igneous. Because at Igneous, as an example, uh, the top, you know, 5% of the market, as an example, does already, uh, uh, you already know who they are. <laughs> you already know who they are. So at, at Barracuda, the, the thing that you could never do is you could never, for example, hire a sales guy for his Rolodex because there are too many. Nobody has a million people in their Rolodex. So you have to let the customers find you. You know, the, the most important thing in a business like ours is, uh, is we know who the customers are and uh, uh, we need to, uh, to be there, you know, when they're, when they're ready to evaluate. And so I think that a lot of the things that, uh, that, that has really become, you know, extremely important now is to really understand uh, uh, what, who your consumer is, you know, what, what, what level that is and what, uh, and tailor that strategy around that. And I think that, you know, what almost every, uh, you know, uh, you know, a growth situation almost everybody goes through is, you know, figuring that out. So as an example, at, uh, at Barracuda, we, uh, we went after, we started off with a lot of traction in mid-market customers, but another dirty little secret is we had a lot of service provider customers. You know, we had, uh, you know, over uh, 750 customers that basically had more than a thousand domains in their system which basically meant you were a, some kind of service provider. You weren't an enterprise or you weren't a, a mid-market company. And the reason for that 
was that Barracuda had no per user fees. But in the end of the day, you've got to actually decide uh, as a company who you're going to be. The marketing strategy that you're going to pick is really different if you're going to sell the service providers than if you're going to sell mid-market businesses. And we had to decide. You know, so we said, hey, look, we're going to go after these mid-market businesses, and that's where our strategy is going to be. And so that's where a lot of the story is going to be written. And I think that, that you know, the same thing, um, you know, has – uh, has really been true with Igneous, which is really deciding, you know, from the outset, look, we're going to be an enterprise company. That's what we're doing. You know, Mike, it's, it's interesting because I'm finding that people are talking all the time about how everything has changed. And as I listen to, to Steve talk and I think about the, you know, from the airports to the, the AdWords strategy to the San Jose Sharks, there are three things that I, I'm going to, summarize everything you said in, in three points. And what's funny is um, I grew up as the son of owners of a travel agency, leisure travel agency. And, and so if you ever want to talk about how to make money in a no margin, no growth business, I got plenty of expertise there for you. Um, <laughs> but, but even before I got to college, even before I knew that I wanted to, to do business, though I think I always kind of knew that, um, it, it's what my parents taught me. Number one, know your model, right? How are you going to make your first $100 million? Okay, my parents didn't quite get there, but uh, not, not for lack of trying. Um, but, you know, know your model, which is going to draw a whole bunch of different things. Focus on the result, not the tactic. And I think we get all tied into tactics, right? And that's why you saw the San Jose Sharks and you saw all that was – or, and then the third piece is fish where the fish are, right? Not, not oh, hey, this company over there is having this great thing. Did you hear Facebook is where it's at? I, I have a client. Um, that, you know, social, we got to do social. Oh my God, we got it. We got it. Our CEO wants social. And I told him social, social is the thing. And I, I said, okay, do me a favor. Send me the 25 customers that you most want to do business with. Um, and we went ahead and we looked at their personas. We identified who they're, we actually had already sourced the list for them. And we went ahead on those 25, for those 25 companies, total of about 75 names. We took a look to see what social media presence they had. And I think the largest um, following, I think one person had 125 people on LinkedIn, 125 connections. And I think one person had 37 tweets, right? And that was about the social media footprint. And I said, look, we can do all you want to do in social media. You should probably know that none of the people that you want to do business with are there, right? And, and so we jump around to all these things and we follow someone else's model. We get tied into the tactics and we forget we got to be where the fish we want to catch are. Is business any more complicated than those three things? Know your model, focus on the result, and fish where the fish are. I, I think that that is, <laughs> you know, that's a pretty good summary. You know, you know in, in, in startups, you don't have a lot of people and you don't have a lot of staff uh, to do a lot of really complicated things. And in the end, you know, those are the things that we're doing. We're driving, uh, we're driving for results. Sorry, I'm going to let you go back to it, Mike, because you just reminded me of the fourth thing. My parents didn't tell me this one. I learned this one later. Less is better. And that gets to the, um, to the, see, I know the law of diminishing returns. What was it? The law of increasing? What, would, what was that? See, I know yeah. diminishing returns really well. What was yeah, yeah, yeah. It's increasing returns. It's, it's that, the more you do, the better it gets. Yeah. And, and, and so you guys did fewer things, but you made it count. Um, so fascinating right there. Mike, did you have a question? No, well, I mean, we could, we could certainly, I, I was, I, I, 
Steve, while you're on, one of the things that I wanted to kind of touch on is, and we do talk a lot about this, uh, you know, Doug and I have conversations about it is, you know, and I, I hate to use the buzzword, but kind of sales and marketing, you know, alignment or challenges within organizations as they continue or, or, or try to grow. Um, and I saw it, you know, throughout my enterprise career, it's like, hey, I don't, I have no idea what marketing is doing. Marketing is like, hey, I have no idea who the customer is, et cetera. And I think some people did a good job of, of really trying to understand, you know, exactly who that customer was, which could then influence those marketing campaigns. So I'd, I'd love your kind of take on, you know, how can a CMO or VP of marketing or director of marketing or even just a marketing practitioner interact with salespeople? What have you seen be successful, especially in such a, a large scale business um, as Barracuda? And then also what you're doing at Igneous today to, to help with that. So, you know, at Barracuda, <clears throat> the, the kind of the fundamentals of the business model started and, you know, I'll, first I'll say what works in act one doesn't always work in act two. So things evolved, but in act one uh, for Barracuda, the, the company made a, a pretty interesting uh, uh, decision, uh, which most, uh, again, it was very, a big departure from what technology companies did, which is that if you think about, you know, in a, in a long-term stable model, you know, Barracuda got cash flow positive pretty quickly. Uh, uh, and uh, in that model, basically 30% of, of revenue uh, was roughly assigned to sales and marketing. And what most uh, companies at our stage would have done is spent the 20% on sales and the 10% on marketing. And, uh, what Barracuda really sought to do based on the model and who was being sold to was invert that and say, hey, let's instead double the amount of marketing that we spend in sales. And the reason was, uh, the reason was that we could get a lot of scalability based on using an all inside team, an all inside channel. And uh, that was just operating at a, uh, uh, a lower model. The, the, the model there was let's go spend the money so that our phone rings, you know, so that people are filling out our forms. So let's spend the money there and make the job of the sales guy easier. And so, uh, so that was just basically the model. And what, what really was there is that uh, our uh, VP of marketing and then our first VP of sales, his name was Ezra, Ezra Okano, who's back at Barracuda now actually, they were in alignment that Ezra knew what his job was. Ezra knew that, hey, I needed to go bring in uh, uh, very junior sales folks. I needed to train them on our model. Uh, you know, and you know, the big thing, I remember uh, uh, Ezra's, one of the big roles that he took in the early days was to take exceptions off the floor. So the biggest problem is, is that if, if a customer throws you a loop for a loop on anything, like uh, the 30-day eval is not going right, you know, we gave free 30-day evals. If the eval is not going right, the deal's not close, he was like, give them to me. Because we were hiring really junior people who were trained on one or two motions, any exception. His biggest job was exception management. And basically he hired, uh, 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 well, he promoted basically another one of our sales guys, uh, who was a very smart guy, to be as a national sales manager. And he was like, hey, you know what? You guys do what you do. Brad and I, we're gonna do all the exceptions. And so he just knew uh, that his role within the model was, uh, was to be able to hire really junior folks and to, to deal. But that was just a fundamental you know, understanding of the model together where uh, 
uh, where, where you go hand in hand. And I think that, you know, obviously the model had to change because what, what you realize in growth as a business is that there are only so many people that, uh, that will type spam filter or web filter or load balancer or whatever you sell into Google. And the moment that you want to actually grow above that, you actually then need to kind of do more traditional sales. And so we had to move from act one to act two. And again, that was a decision that was made with everybody involved. And I think that the, the same is really true uh, at, at Igneous where, uh, you know, uh, uh, you know, myself and, you know, Kevin, you know, uh, you know, working with our CEO, it's like, there's a lot of, there can be really good alignment because, you know, philosophically, you know, both sets of folks actually agree to what the game plan is. And in our case at Igneous, you know, we are into an account-based marketing and account-based selling approach, you know, which basically means that, look, there's a set of things from a data and firmographic and other perspective in marketing that we need to know uh, in terms of how to connect but, you know, a lot of who we target relies on intelligence in the field to know who your buying groups are and to know who your influencers are and to know whatever. And so, you know, the whole thing is that marketing and sales really can't operate uh, in vacuums because, uh, look, there's a set of things that you need to go do to, to target the list of companies and things like that that you're trying to do firmographically. And there's a set of things that you need to do to go gather the uh, – uh, your buying groups, and then you got to execute through both sales and marketing, you know, the campaigns to penetrate who you want to penetrate. And so it's just about understanding your game plan together. You, you are dropping gems and I want to make sure that we got time today to come back to the luck aspect. Cause you forgot, you got to do all that and then have luck. Absolutely. We'll, we'll come back there, but I want to hit, I want to hit a couple points, especially as it relates to what I think our audience is and, and, and potentially even challenge you a little bit. Maybe I'm going to tell you what your strategy really was. Because okay. <laughs> that's who I am. That's how I roll. Um, I think it was interesting that you talked about, um, you know, you know, two to one sales to marketing is how most people did it. You guys, you guys inverted it. Um, I've been saying for years, if, if you're looking to get growth going, you should be allocating 65, 70% to the top of your funnel. Um, I think in today's world, the definition of sales and marketing is changing and we can't even call it that anymore. I think what you have to do is, is allocate your resource. Where in the journey do you allocate your resources? Um, Cause sometimes it's search, sometimes it's not. And, and I think that I hate using the analogy, but, but I always have, which is, I've, you know, I've oftentimes said marketing is air cover sales is your front line, your special forces, your infantry. Well, if you think about how modern warfare is done today is we send our special forces who go out, scout it. They've got their lasers that point in, and then we send in, you know, our marketing resources. That, that's account-based marketing. Yep. Um, it's a little bit more destructive that way, but uh, it's, the <laughs> analogy still, still holds. But, but what I really wanted to hit was you said we wanted them to fill out more of our forms. And that's where I don't think, I don't think that was the biggest benefit of what you did. I don't think that was the biggest impact. I think that was an impact. But I think what you guys did was you defined the market. I think you educated and you influenced. And, and what happened was because you went up here, you went up top when everyone else was, was trying to sell, is you got to educate them before they were looking for that. You, you, you connected that to the business results. They came in with a Barracuda perspective. And so every other organization now had to fight either the customer's preconceived idea of what was needed 
or Barracuda's positioning of what was needed. Um, and, and, and that's hard to do. So you need high paid, very experienced, difficult salespeople. And what's interesting, I think, is the more you educate your market, the more you define the point of view, the more that you're driving that aspect, you don't need more than junior people to sell well, actually percent of what you're selling. Actually, uh, I'll, I'll take it the other way, which is that uh, Barracuda did no education in the market. So one of the things that, uh, one of the criteria that we picked for every market that we went into is there had to be an alternative at the high end and at the low end. And what I meant by that is that re remember that a lot of the early players in the anti-spam appliance space were folks like, Ironport, CypherTrust, you know, MirrorPoint, Tumbleweed, uh, all these guys. Uh, so in the enterprise, there was already the understanding that you just didn't install Symantec on the exchange server. That didn't work. There was an understanding that you put an appliance in front. And at the same time, there was, uh, there was also the understanding at the consumer level that you did anti-spam in your Symantec or your McAfee or your antivirus software at the desktop. Similarly, as we got in the web filtering market, uh, there was already, you know, uh, uh, Blue Coat and WebSense and all these guys at the upper end of the market where at the high end, enterprises knew that there were web filters. And at the low end, there was already Knit Nanny. And so the problem is, is that if you were a mid-market company, you couldn't buy Ironport, uh, but you also couldn't install Symantec on your servers. Similarly, if you were a mid-market company, you couldn't afford to buy Blue Coat but you can't use that nanny. And that was true in everything we did, even in backup. It was like, uh, hey, you know, you uh, can't afford to buy EMC, but you're not gonna get uh, along with Mosey or Carbonite. And so it was one of these things where every market that we went into, and the reason that our strategy of doing electronic marketing and airport ads worked is because we didn't have to explain what this thing was. We cool. can basically put a box up on the airport ad and say, you know, get rid of all your spam. And people go, oh, that must be like an iron porter. Oh, that must be. So you, you, you can't, I mean, in, in its own way, it's still the, the same type of thing. Because what, what it sounds to me like you did was you took, you followed the Christensen disruption path of let, let, let's identify the people that are either underserved by, okay. by one solution or way overserved by another. And you newsjack. So you, you, you leveraged off of the knowledge, the need, but the lack of it. And then it became Barracuda. What, you know, you, you played, you were at the SAT game. It was word association, Barracuda, this mid market. Um, exactly. And, and that's why also we never went for uh, fancy names like, you know, Hey, why don't you call your product like the Barracuda enforcer? No, we called the Barracuda load balancer, the Barracuda load balancer. We call the Barracuda SSL VPN, the Barracuda SSL VPN. It's like Brad Bear. Yeah, the reason that we actually did that, ironically, was that the, one of our most valuable pieces of collateral was the price list. You know, uh, you know like we sell through Cinex or whatever, and a reseller wants to sell. They're going through uh, the Cinex catalog, and they're like, ah, that's the Barracuda load balancer. It's called the Barracuda load balancer. <laughs> yeah, I <laughs> you'll, 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 you'll appreciate this, Steve. I sometimes think the smarter you are, the dumber you, you act. So we, we called our, our inbound marketing process for years, we called it the demand cultivator. We, we still use that term. I think it's a really cool term, right? Demand cultivator. Um, someone, I was talking to a friend of mine who was in marketing. He was looking at our website. He's like, 
Um, he goes, I thought you did inbound marketing. And I said, yeah, we, we do inbound marketing all the time. He's like, well, I don't see it anywhere here. I'm like, it, it's the demand cultivator. And he looked at me, he goes, Doug, how many people that come to your website know that demand cultivator is inbound marketing? And he said, let, let, let's do a quick comparison in Google. How many people are searching demand cultivator? How many people are searching inbound marketing? Guess what happened the next hour? Yeah, he changed it. the website. <laughs> yeah. yeah, no, and that's, you know, that's, that's the whole thing. So the goal at Barracuda was to do uh, almost no education. And that, that plays really differently from where we're at at Igneous right now, uh, which, is that, uh, which is that we believe that for where we're at, even in the top 5% of the market, you know, we have to do, you know, some education that you can get out of it. So we have to sit there and explain that, like, I'll give you an example. Like, something everybody does in IT is they have this thing called a backup window. We're basically uh, from like 11 p.m. to 7 a.m. Uh, you tell your users and your application owners that you don't have access to the data or you're, that your, your performance is going to be uh, uh, impacted during those times. There's actually no reason for that. Uh, if your backup tool works right, there's always enough quiescence uh, throughout the day where if your systems are quiescent, you can yank the data off in highly parallel streams so fast, and when users or applications access the data, you can back off, you can dynamically throttle. And that's always enough in every real world situation to get what you need, where backups basically can run all the time. You don't need to do that if your software is written right. We gotta go educate the market about that. And so, uh, you know, so, you know, we do, you know, at Barracuda, we weren't that active about needing to educate the market because, you know, in general, folks know folks knew that there was spam. Right. Folks knew that there was web, uh, you know, web threats. Folks knew. So there's a little bit that we did, but for the most part, you know, at, at Igneous, you know, we're finding that you know things like our our blog are important. You know, uh, right now I'm a contributor to Forbes. I'm a contributor to InfoWorld. You know, we're we're out there, you know, educating folks. How are you turning that into revenue? Yeah. So. The, you know, so much of this is about, uh, is about that in infrastructure sales, folks have uh, IT planning horizons uh, that are often, you know, three to five years. And so, you, you know, in any particular month, let's say it's five years, in any particular month, you have a one in 60 chance that somebody's starting their evaluation. And so, you know, one of the things that we have, you know, really found with, uh, uh, you know, with our sales process, you know, we've, we've now been in kind of full selling. We launched our company in uh, October of 2016. And so, you know, here we are, uh, you know, a, a bit later in our development and we've actually seen uh, uh, folks reemerge, you know, from our early pipeline days when folks weren't ready and they reemerge. And I think a lot of the way that, uh, that they reemerge is because we have the ability to, you know, run drip campaigns where uh, 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 we're able to kind of talk about something fresh. You know, we, we have different personas running with uh, different drip frequencies <laughs> where, uh, where we can actually drop little tidbits uh, to keep ourselves going. They're, each tidbit itself is valuable enough so that nobody unsubscribes from our mail. <laughs> and uh, it, it helps us be there when they're ready to go. So, Doug, what I just heard is they're not blasting their entire list every single day or every single week. Not, I thought you were supposed right. to do it. Mike, I thought you were supposed to send an email in the morning and anyone that didn't right. open it, send it again. Just send it again at night, yeah. Well, the, the, funny thing, uh, 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 the, the, the funny thing about that is that 
it, you just have a situation where uh, just because someone's not ready to take a meeting doesn't mean uh, uh, they're not interested. Or just because somebody doesn't even open your email doesn't mean it's not interested. It's, I, you know, we, we see the statistics and, you know, email open rates right now are very hard to detect because a lot of next generation firewalls and web filters, yeah, including yeah, this Barracuda, yeah. block, uh, block, you know, our, our HubSpot, uh, uh, you know, click, click data. And that's fine. And that's fine. But for the folks who do, you know, we can definitely see that just because folks aren't opening the email doesn't, is no demonstration of the fact that they're not interested at some point in the future. And so it's really just a matter of, of, of continuing to add value and continuing to keep people up to, to, to speed on the conversation. It, it's about moving beyond the open rate and the click rate, which Absolutely. Is, is the key. Um, yeah. You, uh, Alan, make sure we send this to everybody. They need to hear this. Like they need to listen to this one five times. I, I, I loved it. You, buyers buy on their terms. They buy on their time. Um, you got a five year, you got, you got a five year consideration cycle. That's not even the sales cycle, right? You got a five year consideration cycle and there's nothing you're going to do. That's going to change that five year consideration cycle. So the best thing you can do is, is, is make sure that you're oriented to that, which might give you think about. The, well, and, and what it is, is that, that things unsurprising uh, or that surprise you. Like a great example is uh, our work in the life sciences. It turns out in the life sciences and in many other industries like it, science is moving faster than Moore's law. So for example, the price of genomics equipment uh, has gone down by a factor of five, you know, uh, on a yearly basis, you know, for, for quite some time. You know, Moore's law is a doubling of transistors every two years, right? But what you're seeing is that science is moving faster than Moore's law. And so you're at a place where the IT planning horizon based on Moore's law, which was set up for the next three years, no longer works right. with all your scientists are upgrading their equipment every year and generating five times more data than they were the year before. And so this is not the, you know, the IDC 30% a year growth of data. This is a lot more significant because the science is moving really fast. And what's interesting is that because of AI and machine learning, a lot of data that you used to allow to be in cold archives and archived out to tape is stuff that you actually want to be able to bring back uh, to run machine learning on. And so there's not only a growth of the data, but a desire to keep it longer. And so it's one of these things where a lot of IT professionals in the life sciences have been, have been saying, you know what, uh, uh, even though I plan to look at, you know, revisit this, this contract or revisit this strategy in three years, I got to do it now. And so we have to be there as, as, as they're hitting that aha moment. So for the, for the audience, and, and just to add on to what, what you just said, Steve, so I started my career as a software developer for Solera Genomics, which is the company that Matt the I'm sorry, started. Mike, 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 you started yeah. your, your career as a geologist. You were the rock. Well, no, no, no. I actually Full disclosure. Geology. I, I, I studied geology in college. Okay. <laughs> so from a cost perspective, like you talk about orders of magnitude, we had 300 applied biosystems uh, sequencers. Each one of those sequencers cost $450,000. Wow. And we had 300 of them. Additionally, it wasn't even the cost of the sequencers. It was the cost of the reagents that went in there to sequence the DNA. And at that point, we were spending around $10,000 a day just to run those sequencers. Now you can buy a 
sequencer that, like you said, produces 10x more data in a single day than one of those systems could produce in a single year. The reagents for them are, you know, a couple dollars a day, and those machines you can now buy for five thousand um, okay. dollars. So what cost us? And Craig Venner, who you know is one of the godfathers of, of the human genome, what cost? I think it was like ten million dollars to sequence Craig's genome. You can now do for less than a thousand dollars. Yeah, absolutely. Um, Mike, I never knew you were this smart. <laughs> I'm, I'm really not. But science is moving faster than IT, and so you know, for us, you know, the you know, we are you know, we are definitely seeing that. Uh, that, you know, even though they're, they're sort of traditionally within, you know, IT, potentially a three to five year consideration cycle, uh, you know, it's kind of like right now, microscopy is where genomics was three years ago, sure. where the advances in electron microscopy are such that, that everybody's upgrading their equipment, generating just a, a bunch more data. I, I, think, I think the lesson here in, in the limited time we have is you know, with, with the approach that you're taking and, and for the, those that are not in the direct science um, space that, you know, that, that's having that direct impact is when, when you position yourself to be helpful and you align yourself to what happens on your customer, and this is actually going to be a great tangent to our luck component, you actually <clears throat> position yourself to be lucky, whereas when you're working so hard and you're pressing so hard, make the sale, make the sale, hit the number, hit the number, you you miss all that luck. You miss all those things. You, you create that negative equity. And I can just point out to anybody, just th think of, I know for me, this is true. I met my wife about two weeks after I realized that, you know what, for the next few years, it's just, you know, I'm going to be focused on my business and this, and I'm, I'm not even looking anymore. It's not worth it. And all of a sudden the, the next thing I went to that I got forced to go to, and literally, by the way, I went, I brought work to this thing. Cause I'm like, this is just going to be, well, this is so stupid. I can't believe I'm going there. And lo and behold, I meet the woman who I marry 10 months later. And it's kind of that same thing. You put yourself out there, you create value and, and the people find you, right? I mean, it, it, it's not, it's not direct. It's not, they Googled you. It's just, you're out there. You've got that point of view. There's, there's something there. So, so let me ask this question so that we do address it. I know, I'm sorry, because I want to talk about luck, but Mike, you luck, you, you wanted to say something. So I, yeah, so I, I wanted, I wanted to ask um, Steve, your perspective on this. Cause I, I think it's, I think it's a challenge for some organizations to either to invest in, or they don't know how to invest it in. Doug, I mean, feel free to jump in as well, but you referenced uh, a gentleman on your team at Barracuda, Mike, a few times and that he was an engineer as a background, you know, that was yep. his background. And one of the things that I, that I see very, very often in the realm of marketing is that a lot of marketing organizations are missing kind of that engineering component. I'd, I'd love to get your take on that of, of, do you feel whether or not you're an enterprise organization, small to medium sized business, you know, you're kind of growing. But do you really feel that that engineer, and personally I do, can have that much of an impact? Anybody that has kind of that engineering mindset versus a creative mindset. Well, uh, uh, you know, I'm biased. So, uh, you know, I have a bachelor's and master's degree in electrical engineering from MIT. <laughs> you know, I, I have an engineering background, so I'm biased. What year did you, what year did you graduate? Uh, I graduated, uh, my, my undergrad is 89, my master's was in 90. You overlapped when my brother was there. 
My brother graduated MIT Aeronautics Aeronautics Engineering and History. Oh, course 16 and course 21. Awesome. Yes. How about this? Sorry, I I digress. How about that? Yeah. I'm sorry. So MIT Electric Engineering. Pick that. That's where you were when I interrupted you. Yeah, yeah, no. So uh, I, I have a bias. And, and what was interesting is my first job out of after getting my master's was uh, as a, an associate product manager at Oracle. And what's interesting is that at that time, you know, I think that Larry Ellison kind of, you know, had a predisposition, you know, to, uh, to kind of hire the entry level product managers of folks who had, uh, who had advanced degrees in engineering. You know, and so that's, that was, uh, uh, you know, that was at that time, you know, when, when, when I joined Oracle back in 1990, you know, that was the profile of many of my peers, uh, you know, w- with that, with that engineering background. So, uh, uh, so I think it's, uh, I think it, it helps. Uh, I'll, on the other hand, I also know uh, many talented marketers who do not have engineering degrees. And so I think more than anything, it's a, uh, it's a mindset. My, my, my take, which gets close to that, and I don't have an engineering degree, and my brother does, as I mentioned. In yeah, I'm not saying – I say this. I'm not saying that you need to have that engineering degree, what, but having somebody that has that more technical mindset what, on your team. I don't think it's the technical mindset. I think everybody needs a systems thinker. And I think when you're in engineering – you learn systems and you learn that just because these two things are not located, are, are located next to each other, doesn't mean that's where the problem is per se. Um, I think, and I, I haven't studied engineering, but I think there's that degree of science in, in that, that, that's taught in engineering that says, you know, we go into things with a hypothesis, e- even when, you know, what I love about scientists that I talk to is even when they, you know, when it's moved beyond theory to fact, it's still kind of theory, right? We're still testing it. It's, you know, this is the truth as we know it today. And, and, and there's that aspect of understanding that systems are dynamic, there's change. And, and I think that, that, that la- I think everybody needs a systems thinker and whether that's an engineering degree or something else, if you don't understand how systems work, um, that, that's where life becomes just total chaos. So... I said I was going to have my son major in engineering. I said that about 15 years ago when I realized how much of it was that. And of course, he followed my footsteps in his majoring in business administration with a uh, focus on marketing. So, so much for, uh, for intention. So you are doing a lot of smart things, Steve. Uh, no question about it. But there's that ingredient that we started off the conversation with. How do you go to your board and say, I need to order more luck? <laughs> how do you grow a business and you know that that's the truth guys it's you know you can follow the formula that everyone else has done and there is i i think it's 30 to 50 percent of the story is is luck right time right place and i don't think luck takes anything away from the hard work because you know the harder i work the luckier i am you know what jay paul getty said was the three keys to becoming a millionaire don't you no what did he say he said wake up early work hard strike oil <laughs> luck, right? Yeah. So, so, with your background, with your experience, with someone who's seen it, how do you build when you know there's still that ingredient of luck? What? How does that impact you? How do you how do you manage that? Right. So, uh, you know what it is. It's a little bit like uh, I have I have friends, and I don't do this, uh, uh, but I have friends of mine 
these two guys who uh, are really good, good friends of mine from high school who uh, love to go to Vegas, love to gamble. And they have a system. And he's based, they, their system uh, is basically predicated on the fact that, uh, that if you look in, uh, across the, uh, all your hands, uh, the, the chance of your not hitting five in a row is uh, 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 in one stretch is infinitesimally small. So what they basically do is they say, look, I can only control two things. I can control uh, when I leave the table and I can control how much I bet. And what they basically try to optimize, their whole betting strategy is about, about how to maximize your gain and minimize your loss, assuming that you're going to have one streak of five in a row somewhere in your session. Uh, but, but independent of the specifics of their strategy, it's about what you can control, which is, uh, uh, which is when you leave the table and how much you're going to bet. And I actually think that, uh, that what I've seen in, um, like, for example, in the case of, of, of both Barracuda and Latitude, you know, where we ultimately ended up doing an IPO, it was about knowing that when you uh, were actually uh, uh, hitting your success to make sure you invested, you, you throw your, your chips in <laughs> as you're successful. In other words, as Barracuda was hitting success, if we were too afraid at that point to spend all the money on airport ads and radio ads and all these things that, that look risky, if we weren't going to put the chips in, uh, we wouldn't, wouldn't have had the success. But similarly, you also have to know, you know, uh, 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 when to leave the table. In other words, you're going to get a certain amount of venture capital funding or a certain amount of debt financing or a certain amount of stuff. And you got to know uh, uh, when not to go spend the money. And so a lot, I think, is, is not uh, really creating your luck, but it's giving uh, yourself enough time to hit the luck as well as once you hit the luck to ensure that you're betting enough to capitalize on it. So I'm going to summarize what you oh, – go ahead, Mike. Go ahead. Uh, here, here's, here's my – well, one, I, I agree with you, is, is maximize the time that you have until you can hit that luck streak and then identify – you will get lucky if you can identify that luck streak. But it also reminds me of a story that um, a guy that I met that was a data scientist, a Stanford grad, um, and, and he looked across the table from me in a conversation and said – Mike, do you know how a blind cow finds water? And I obviously just looked dumbfounded, kind of like what Doug looks like normally. They, they just randomly walk around until they find a depression or a hill, like a downward slope, and they just follow the downward slope. So they just randomly walk until they find the downward slope, and they know that once at the bottom of that hill is water. Um, so it is like – Coming back to what you said, it's actually quite brilliant that, um, or, or brilliant advice that, you know, make sure that you keep that runway as long as you can until you hit that stride. Be, being that I want to elevate um, my, my role here, Steve, as I'm sure you can tell us to elevate the thinking here, I'm going <laughs> to tie this all together. Um, and I, I want to repeat, you know, we started off with uh, know your model, focus on the result, fish where the fish are, and less is more. I think what you just said um, really hits, I love cards as an analogy or gambling as an analogy. Have a system. Um, you control what you can control. Now, you said two things. I'm going to add a third thing that I think that they control. Maybe it's inferred in the other two. Um, how much you bet, when you leave the table, 
but also the cards and cards and or bets you play and or make. And I think if you, if you watch where Vegas makes all their money at card tables, they make all their money on the prop bets. So if, if you're playing craps, I mean, how you can bet on the houses side if you want to, if you want to play craps, but they got all that stupid prop bet in there. You've got the, the stupid prop bets on your three card poker and, and, and all those, all those things that are going on. And when you do that, when you bet green, you're betting on luck. When you're, when you're playing the system, when you're controlling your cards, when you're, you know, when you're that seven stud um, poker player and you know that you're going to fold 70% of the time because you're only playing these card sets, that's when you let luck. Yeah, well, that's, that's basically uh, these guys' system. Uh, the, some of the yeah. details of their system are basically around the need to break even and be slightly negative yeah. your, during your session throughout the whole thing. So it's a very strict uh, uh, rule process. And one of the things that they do in their system is to get the maximum house odds. Uh, they, uh, you know, to get the, the most favorable rules, they always play uh, six deck shoes and higher because that the casino gives you the, the most uh, uh, lax rules so you can stay in that position right. the longest. So because they're concerned about card counting and other things, they're like the rules get way too restrictive when you play at, at, at different tables. You, okay, we, we, we could go on. We're about to get the, the, the triple exclamation points from, from Ellen here. Steve, this was I, – I didn't even ask half the questions that I came on here planning to ask you. This was um, – I'm your – can I be your new best friend? <laughs> this was um, – you know, Mike, we talk about business acumen all the time. You know, Pete, this, this, this was amazing. This yeah. was – and it's all – you know, and it's all um, – it doesn't require a sense. rocket scientist or an electrical yeah. engineer to understand what we talked about. Yeah, no, it's, yeah, it's fun to be on this and have a conversation. It's great. This was awesome. So, uh, Steve, thanks so much. Um, hopefully we'll have you on again uh, soon and we can talk about uh, all the craziness and myths associated to marketing and marketing technology, which was my original plan to, uh, oh, okay. to we can definitely do that sometime. That'd be great. So cool. Alrighty. And thanks everybody for joining on this episode until next time. Steve, man, this was 